Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. You can have a seat. Welcome. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, if you're watching online, uh, you haven't gotten back from spring break, tuning in from wherever, welcome. We are glad uh, that you are here uh, as well. So if you have a Bible, uh, you could turn to Mark chapter 15. So we just have two more weeks uh, in our series through uh, the gospel of Mark. Uh, that's is Mark's account of Jesus's life. And, um, and so just two more weeks left. And some of you guys who've been around for a while, like, thank goodness. You know what I mean? It feels like we've been in Mark for a while. I know, uh, but it's been good, right? Book of Mark's been good. Good, good, cool. Um, so throughout the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus in a few different ways. Oh, we've seen Jesus teaching, uh, drawing crowds to himself as he teaches. We've seen him work miracles, uh, feeding 5,000 uh, people with just a few loaves and some fish. Uh, we've seen Jesus heal people, uh, which would also draw amazing crowds. Uh, we've seen a variety of responses to Jesus all the way through the book of Mark. We've seen some people love and cherish him. Others hate him and out of envy want to get him off the scene some people have been confused by Jesus. We've heard Jesus claim to be the Messiah, uh, the Christ, the one who's sent to deliver his people. We've heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, the, the one that Daniel talked about that's going to come from heaven. We've heard Jesus talk about himself as a servant, the kind of servant who somehow in his serving saves We've heard people also call him by a lot of different names. Lord or rabbi, teacher. And now in our texts, we come to an abrupt ending to Jesus' life. Jesus' death on the cross. John Knox says this, to remember Jesus is to remember first of all his cross. That's weird, right? Why? Why is the most significant thing about Jesus the cross? Why don't we remember first his teaching? Why isn't the most significant thing the miracles or the healings? Why isn't the most important thing what we should remember first? Why, why isn't that what other people maybe thought about him or said about him? Why isn't the most significant thing his compassion for the down and out or his opposition to the religious establishment? Why is it the cross of Jesus that we remember first. And maybe more than that, and some of you who are maybe new to this kind of whole Christian or church scene, maybe you've even thought about this. Why is it that the cross is what Christians sing about and celebrate and use phrases like we have joy in the cross or we rejoice in the cross or we have hope in Jesus's cross? That's a little weird. Why is there a whole phenomena where we turn the cross into jewelry or works of art. When we remember Jesus, we first remember his cross. And that's the question we're going to answer today. Why? Why is the cross so significant? So let me catch you up on the story. Last time we were together, Jesus was being tried late one night by the religious leaders. 
As we ended, we saw the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes all together have agreed that Jesus should be condemned to death. But there's a problem. Remember, they're Jewish religious leaders. So they actually don't have the authority to conduct an execution. The Roman government has that. And so they have to then send Jesus on to a guy named Pontius Pilate. So first thing the next morning, they send Jesus to Pilate to see if Pilate will uh, agree with them and sentence Jesus to be executed. Pilate, however, doesn't see any sort of reason for Jesus to be executed. He asks him if he's the king of the Jews. Jesus neglects to answer. He, remember, just like the other trial, uh, can't get kind of a full picture of everything that's going on. It's the Passover, remember, and so uh, Herod is in town. Herod's like a, uh, they call him a tetrarch. He's like a governor of of Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. So Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and he says, I'm going to make this somebody else's problem. So he sends him uh, right down the street to Herod, who's in town for the Passover. Herod doesn't find anything wrong with him, sends him back to Pilate, like, no, this is not my problem. This This happened in your place. Pilate meets with the religious leaders, and Luke tells us, Pilate even says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by this guy. Mark tells us that it's out of envy that these religious leaders have put Jesus in front of Pilate, and he knows that. And so in order to appease the religious leaders, but also to make sure his conscience is clear, Pilate devises a scheme. It had been his custom to release a prisoner back to the Jewish people every year at the Passover. There happens to be the perfect candidate, a guy named Barabbas, who had led an insurrection and committed murder. And Pilate, I'm sure, is thinking to himself, no way they're going to pick this guy instead of Jesus. So we ask, who would you like for me to release to you? Mark tells us that the religious leaders have stirred up the crowd, and so they begin to chant for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate says, are, are you sure what has he done? And the crowd just chants again, crucify him, crucify him. And so out of the fear of man, Pilate wanting to appease these religious leaders, these leaders out of envy and jealousy, Jesus is sentenced to death on a cross. Soldiers show up, take Jesus away. They strip off his clothes. They beat him. They mock him. They even dress him up in a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on his head. Mark tells us they mockingly salute him. Hail the king of the Jews. We, we, we uh, talk about this crown of thorns often. Somebody had to make that. You ever think about that? Somebody took the time to put that together. And these soldiers then, after beating and mocking Jesus, lead him away to be crucified. Now those being crucified would have to carry their own cross to a place called Golgotha, which just means a place of skulls. Sounds like something out of a horror movie. But Jesus is already so exhausted from the lack of sleep. Remember, he's been up all night in the physical beating that the soldiers have to get another man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross for him. They arrive there at Golgotha, drop the cross in the ground with Jesus nailed to it. 
And they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. The idea is to deaden the pain, and Jesus refuses. The soldiers place a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. Are, are you noticing what Mark wants us to see so far? Everybody thinks Jesus' kingship is a joke. So they're mocking this supposed king who is now dying on a cross. And they all stand, Mark repeats, all mock and make fun of Jesus. Then, this is where we pick up, Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land for, uh, or until the ninth hour. Some crazy. So it's about 12 o'clock to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. No light. Complete darkness. It's almost as, as though the sun itself decided it was not going to give its light to this monstrosity. That God's creation knew better than God's people what was actually happening. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's wait, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw, uh, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So what does this mean when Jesus repeats on the cross that God had forsaken him? He's quoting in Aramaic from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 describes an innocent man who's persecuted. And Jesus is quoting, saying that applies to his situation. What's actually happening here is Jesus expre is expressing that he is filling the full weight of, the, of, of sin while he's on the cross. That Jesus' experience is not just limited to physical pain, but that Jesus is also experiencing a relational separation from God. The relational separation from God that happens for all people who sin. And just like Adam and Eve were a, had experienced separation from God when they were kicked out of the garden for their sins, so here Jesus is also experiencing some sort of form of separation. That in paying the penalty of your sin and my sin for us in our place, that is not just the physical pain and death of the cross, but it affected his relationship with God the Father. John Calvin says this, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. He paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. 
that we know Jesus fully and completely experienced the full penalty of sin, both physically and death and spiritually in separation from God the Father. He was forsaken or abandoned. Now, this is kind of mind-blowing. Points us back to this thing that we've talked about all the way through the Gospel of Mark, this kind of mystery in the incarnation. How does Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, work at this point in time? I, I don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus was God forsaken and still God three in one at the same time. And this might be one of those questions that I ask in eternity. How does this all work? But the point is that the full experience, the full penalty of sin, Jesus fully experienced. The second kind of strange thing that happens here is this curtain thing. This curtain is ripped in half. Now, the curtain of the temple is this massive, heavy curtain. It is not like these curtains that we have back here. And what it did is it separated the rest of the temple from this place called the Holy of Holies. Now, in the temple, the Jewish temple, the Holy of Holies is where God's presence dwelled. And nobody was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies except for once a year. And so once a year, a holy priest, a priest that was set apart and chosen... A priest representing the holy nation, the chosen and set apart people of God, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, would enter into the holy of holies to make a sacrifice, to make atonement for the sins of all the people for the entire year. And at the moment of Jesus' death, Mark records for us that that temple that celebrated, that separated the most holy place of God from everywhere else was ripped in half. And Mark gives us this detail so we're not confused about the actor. He says it was torn from the top all the way down to the bottom. It was the very hand of God that ripped it apart. Why? So that people would know that the final atonement or payment for sin had been made. The atonement of all atonements, the sacrifice of all sacrifice, that the ultimate sacrifice once and for all was made and radically changed the way that we come to God. That this was the end of priests mediating our relationship with God. This was the end of the animal sacrifices made on that day of atonement, Yom Kippur. This was the end of limited access to the presence of God. The barrier between us and God had been demolished, ripped apart, fabric fiber by fabric fiber. And now anyone, through Jesus Christ, who believes in Jesus, can freely go into the very presence of God. Or we could say it this way, God's door is wide open. So let's put these two things together, because when you put them together, it's something amazing. On the cross, Jesus was condemned for our sin, forsaken by God the Father, so that we could be forgiven of our sin and be together with God the Father. Let me say that again. On the cross, Jesus was condemned for our sin, for us in our place, and forsaken by God the Father, so that we could be forgiven for our sin and be together with God the Father. 
This is why John Knox says what we remember first is the cross. Because it is not Jesus' teaching, although it is brilliant and unbelievable, that connects us in a relationship with God. It is not Jesus' miracle-working power that's able to forgive us of our sins. It is not Jesus' healings that justify us or set us in a right relationship with God. It is not Jesus' compassion to people who are down and out that allows us to walk into the very presence of God and know him personally. It is Jesus' death on the cross for us in our place. That the entirety of Jesus' life was culminating in this one moment where he is paying the price of sin in full. So what does this mean for us? I think three things, three big ideas that I want you guys to see today. Number one, our sin is worse than we think. Our sin is worse than we think. While the law of God shows us to be sinners, exposing our need to be saved, when we hear God's rules, we're confronted with the fact that we cannot keep them. The cross, though, shows us the very depth of our sin, how serious and grave that it is, that the only possible way that God could forgive us of our sin is for this sort of death, for himself to die for us. It is weighty and serious. Now, I've used this word sin a ton already. So what do I mean when I use the word sin? The Bible talks about sin in a variety of ways. Some places the Bible talks about sin as in missing the mark or not attaining the goal. That we fall short of living the lives that God designed and intended for us to live. Sometimes the Bible talks about sin as an inward corruption. That we have disordered desires at the very heart of who we are. Sometimes the Bible talks about sin as a perversion of character. That we're not as strong or as good as we think we may be. Sometimes it uses a word to describe stepping over a boundary, that we've crossed the line. And sometimes the Bible talks about sin as a disregard for God's law and for God himself, the lawgiver. That we are rebels. Not good people who need to be reformed in some way, but we are, as C.S. Lewis says, rebels who need to lay down our arms. John Stott says then of our sin that nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. That when it comes to sin, we may minimize the ways that we miss the mark, saying, what's the big deal? We may laugh off when we fall short and say, I'm only human, right? We may justify our inward disordered desires. Say, I'm just like everybody else. Boys will be boys. That we may downplay issues with our character. Hey, it's not like I killed anyone. 
We may trivialize when we cross the line, and we may make light of our disregard for God and his laws, but the cross shows us how grave our sin really is. That the only possible solution on the face of the planet is God dying on the cross for us in our place. It's the only way to solve the problem of sin, the only way for us to be right with God was for Jesus to bear our sin on the cross, then it must be much worse than we often think it is. And it is Jesus' cross that puts that sobering reality on display. So I think this text shows us our sin is worse than we think. But secondly, this text shows us that God is more loving than we deserve. How could we not be overwhelmed by the love of God when we reflect on the cross? That God's love led Jesus to the cross. You ever think about that? It's not like the cross happened and then God was like, oh, now I think I'll love. Right? That God, out of a love for his people, ensured that the cross would happen. In fact, this is how we know what real love even is. John, one of Jesus' disciples in his letter, one of his three letters, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we, he says, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what he says, we know love then. Not by romantic comedies, right? Even the ones that Ryan Reynolds is in. That's not how we know what love is. We don't know love by a dictionary uh, definition or an Instagrammable uh, saying. We don't know love even from the most famous romantic poets of all. We don't know love from Shelley or Keats, Blake or Wordsworth. We, that's not where we know love from. We know love from the cross of Jesus. Or maybe another way we could say it is this, is that our love barely even scratches the surface of the depths of God's love. Yes, you love your kids. And yes, you hopefully love your spouse. But all of our love is tainted in a way by ulterior motives. All of our love carries in it a measure of self-interest. It's not quite unconditional. But God's love is pure and complete, holy and good, and we see that clearly at the cross. This unbelievable act of self-giving love. Jen Wilkins says, God's love for us is a costly love and it is a valuable love. It is a selfless love in the truest sense of the word because he doesn't need anything from us in return. And that's what we see on the cross. It's like we talked about last week, again, God sacrificing, not demanding a sacrifice, giving himself completely so that you and I can know him. Sometimes we call this kind of love by another word, grace. 
love and favor given to those who don't deserve it. So this text shows us that our sin (laughs) is worse than we thought it was. This text is full of good news that God's love is greater than we could possibly imagine. Number three, salvation is a free gift. How could we look fully at the price that Jesus paid for sin and think that there was anything left to be owed? How could we see the cross? How could we ponder and think, what does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken by God? How could we see Jesus paying the full penalty, not just in his physical death, but in his spirit, the very essence of his being? How could we see all that and come to the conclusion that we still owe God something? That there's still a price tag to be paid? What more could be required? I think the disciples who were there at the cross, Mark would say, nothing, what what more do you think should be owed? Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you or for me to do. Some of us still have this twisted. We, We think that perhaps Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is like flying, right? Man, it's great. Somebody bought you a plane ticket. Going on vacation, completely free. Man, but you know what happens. Man, you got to pay the baggage fee when you get to the gate. And then you're there early, and you got through security faster than you thought, so you're going to have to buy your own meal. I mean, you already covered your Uber to and from the airport. There's hidden fees. Some of us think that God's love is like the credit card company, Right? Uh, Oh, I didn't read the small print. There's more to be paid here. Not from this picture. There is nothing left to be paid. Jesus paid it all every bit. So then it's really more like a Christmas present. I love Christmas. You guys like Christmas? I get kind of giddy at Christmas. I get fired up about some stuff at Christmas. I complain. I just want you, I complain. When you guys start listening to Christmas music like before Thanksgiving, I get mad about it and I complain. And then my wife is like, let's go ahead and put up the tree. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Total, total Grinch, Scrooge. And then for some reason, man, that first week of December, like a switch flips in me and I'm like, yeah, this is the most wonderful time of the year. Let's go. I can't listen to enough Christmas music. How crazy would it be if with my kids, we gave them Christmas presents and we said, mom and dad love you a lot. We want you to have this wonderful present. By the way, we, we could only afford half. And so we put the other half on the credit card and we're gonna need you to pay us back for that. It's insane. Maybe some of you had parents who did that to you, and I'm very sorry. But salvation is a free gift. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, that we are justified freely by his grace. Jesus paid 
the penalty for your sin and my sin in full on the cross. There is no more payment to be made. Complete. So how do you and I then respond? If our sin is worse than we think, God's love is greater than we could possibly imagine, more than we deserve, and this gift of salvation is free because of what Jesus did on the cross. How do we respond? All right, I'm gonna need you to think. Some of you guys weren't here. It's okay, I'm gonna help you. But do you remember all the way back to Mark chapter one? When we, when we started this, all the way back, Mark chapter one, verse one, you remember what it says? The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark lays his cards out on the table. You remember that? I'm going to tell you this good story about Jesus. This story is about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, and I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think about him. I think he is the Son of God. And all the way through the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus be called Messiah. We've seen him called Lord. We've seen people accuse him of being a demon from the pit of hell. Some people have called him rabbi. He's been described as compassionate, merciful, dangerous, and great. But for the first time ever, verse 39, something happens in the book of Mark. And when the centurion who stood facing him, so Roman soldier, saw that in this way he breathed his last, the centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark is ending the way he started. I'm convinced of it, and you wanna know who the first person to confess it is out loud? A Roman centurion. Says he's the son of God. Now this is king language. Caesar was thought to be a son of little g God. And so for the Roman centurion to confess it, he's saying this crucified man is the crucified king. He's the rightful ruler of all. He's the one that should be worshiped and adored. He's the one. Surely he was the son of God. Why on earth would Mark save this for a Roman pagan soldier who had participated in a hands-on, intimate, personal way in the crucifixion of Jesus? Because he wants you to know that this story is for you, that it is for me. That this story is for the crowds who heard Jesus teach. That Jesus' death is for the friends who deserted him. That we saw last week. That this, this crucifixion, Jesus' death, is for the religious leaders who condemned him. That this crucifixion is for the government officials who ordered his execution. This crucifixion is even for the men who drove the nails in his hands. That this death is for all of them. And for us. That no matter what you've done or who you are, no matter your background or where you're from, no matter if you grew up religious or you did not, that you can respond and declare that surely Jesus is the Son of God. 
That's what Mark believed. Mark 1, chapter 1. And that's what this centurion confesses at the end. And the good news of the gospel is that salvation is a free gift for all who confess Jesus as the Son of God. Paul says it another way in Romans chapter 10. It is for all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, remember our sin is more grave, serious than we think. And so our first response to this story should be humility and confession. That for us, faced with the weight of our, the reality of our sin as displayed in the cross, that we should humble ourselves and confess to God that we are sinners. That we should likewise, though, be filled with unbelievable gratitude because God's love is more than you and I deserve. That God loves us. And we know that from the cross. So we should confess our shortcomings and our sin, how we have missed the mark, how we have overstepped the boundary, how we have rebelled against God. And then we should be filled with gratitude and unbelievable joy because of God's immense love for his people. And then we should, by faith, receive this free gift of salvation. Just humbly and gratefully receive it. There's no work left for you to do. No minimum number of church services you have to attend. There's no number of Bible readings you have to read in order to get your commission of salvation. Just a free gift extended from God because Jesus paid it fully. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, a believer sometimes in Jesus is the phrase we use, this is the way you respond. Confronted with Jesus' cross anew today, our response together should be a humble confession of our sin, a grateful recognition of God's immense love for us, and a renewal of our faith in Jesus that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And... If you have yet to believe in Jesus, you would say, I'm not close to God. Maybe you've been in church or around church. Maybe you're a Republican or a decent person and you think that all makes you a Christian. Then the message for you is the same today. That you would come humbled and broken by the immensity of your sin. Confess to God that you are a sinner. That you would be overwhelmed by God's love for you. That God loved you enough. That God, as Paul says, demonstrated his love for you in this, that Christ died for you. 
and that you would receive by faith, just trusting in Jesus, this free gift of salvation. There's nothing else for you to add, just to receive. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.